a dream that we'd all die for A reason for us all to live and something we could fight for I might just help a man up to his feet or hold a newborn But no matter what I do, my hands remembering my rifle Welcome to Veteran's Day of Mind, I'm your host Garrett Jones We have a fantastic guest for you today But before we get into it, I just want to say a massive thank you to our sponsors Which are a lot of you, the listeners, uh, who are contributing to the Patreon for the podcast, we really appreciate it. Um, for as little as a quid a month, you can sponsor a child, and that child is me, Garrett Jones. Um, and the podcast uh, helps us cover the recording costs um, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and um, also want to say a massive thank you to Combat Fuel. Uh, if you are in the forces, you can use their products with full confidence. Uh, it's all within the in-sport, informed sports regulations, all that kind of thing. Uh, I use their products myself. Whey protein, I use the, actually I shouldn't tell you what I use because then it'll go out of stock, um, but I, I, can't, I can't do that to you. White chocolate, whey protein is my favourite, and then if you want something a little bit different, check out their clear proteins. Um, I don't know what kind of hocus pocus they use to make these things, but it's almost like having a juice drink, but it's protein. Check it out yourself, you won't be disappointed. Uh, they've got pre-workouts, they've got all kinds of supplements for your joints, sleep aids, all that kind of thing. Uh, Combat Fuel, check them out, link down in the show notes. And also want to say a massive thank you to Zulu Alpha Strap Company, veteran-owned, veteran-operated, great uh <laughs> swearing there I'm not gonna swear to them we're professional a great team um down there run by daz i've been supporting the podcast for a long time if you've got a nice watch get yourself a nice strap for it and if you haven't got a nice watch why don't you start your way up to one with a zulu alpha strap and um i should have said as well patreon if you're interested in having a look and joining up you can do so down in the show notes really appreciate you guys getting behind that because it is um um it, it gives me it gives me kind of like a, a lot of uh um, kind of confidence that you know we're giving giving you what you want if you're willing to put your hand in your pocket and support the podcast. Uh, if everyone chucks in a quid, we can bring the podcast to you on a regular basis. And uh, maybe I, we, people do ask about video and stuff as well. I love to start doing the video podcast, but um, we need some more Patreons for that. So check them out. Um, right, guys. Without further ado, let me introduce you to today's guest. She is a writer, a war reporter, adventurer, author, speaker, and ambassador uh, ambassador for the Burnt Children Relief. Uh, charity and also emergency usa um i'll put all of holly's stuff she's up to so much stuff um i really recommend her a sub 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 stack as well which is uh um she has dispatches in there from around the world um a lot of war zones in there holly's been in iraq um covering everything with isis she's been in afghanistan a lot we're going to be talking a lot about afghanistan today but she's been all over the place uh, she's a great writer and just goes to these really interesting places and uh, what i really like about her writing is it's not the um, it's, it's none it's none of this fluffy stuff that you'll get from the news channel. She's getting in there talking to the people, um, you know, talking to the people that war really affects. Um, so I, I really admire her for that, and I really enjoyed today's conversation. I know you will too. So without further ado, please give a very warm welcome to Holly McKay. Holly, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for giving up your time. Thank you for having me. We have so much, so many directions that we could go into with this, um, with your career, your experiences. Gonna gonna kind of concentrate on Afghanistan a little bit today, and I don't think we can really go down the Afghanistan route without knowing your kind of let's call it the nine eleven moment. You know that moment that everyone's like, you know, I think every veteran who was there in the early days remembers it. The crazy thing is, a lot of veterans who were there last year weren't even born when nine eleven happened, so they don't have their nine eleven moment, which kind of blows my mind. Um, but where where were you? Where was it? Where did it all happen? And all, where did the journey, the Afghanistan journey, begins for you? 
gosh, I was at boarding school in Sydney in Australia when 9-11 happened. I think I was 15, almost 16. And, you know, living a, a very sort of sheltered bubble. I grew up in North Queensland um, on a sugarcane farm, really. And then I, I went to a, a ballet boarding school and was sort of training to be a professional ballerina. So 9-11 was sort of very left of field. You know, I, I didn't have a deep understanding of geopolitics. Afghanistan wasn't really a place that I'd even heard of at that point. Um, but it certainly, I think, was a moment for me in realizing how little I knew about the world, how little we're taught at school about the world, um, and that just this entire history that I absolutely had no idea about. But I think at that point, it, it certainly piqued an interest, but I I could never have imagined that then the, the role that Afghanistan would then play in, in my life in the decades to come. So that sort of is the, yeah, was sort of the crazy part. And, and when I was in Afghanistan last year and it was the 20 year anniversary for 9-11, I, I remember sort of sitting there thinking, wow, you could just never have told me how much Afghanistan would mean to me, you know, at that point in time. So it's, it's, it's been a long journey. So what were those kind of stepping stones then from getting you from boarding school, ballet class to Afghanistan? Because you, um, I don't think you were in the military, were you? Which is obviously the career that kind of takes most people there by choice or not. So what, what was it that kind of led you down that path? So I always thought I would go into, I mean, I always loved to write, but I really, you know, my, my love in life was, was my ballet and it was something I'd, I'd been doing since I was very young, um, and I thought that was, you know, what I was going to do. And I broke my ankle when I was 18. So that sort of rendered me to go back to, to university for a little bit. I really hated that sort of school life. I hated being in these sort of classrooms with people lecturing at me. And I think I just, I wanted to be out in the field, so to speak. Um, I ended up getting a sort of a scholarship, um, exchange scholarship to go and study in New York to do my, my last semester. And so I was, I think I was about 20 and I went to New York and people were talking about these internships and I really didn't understand. We, we just don't have those in Australia. You're either working or you're doing work experience or, or you're studying. Um, so I just made a few calls. I'd had a bit of a experience in, uh, in coding on the web. And so this was sort of the 2006 beginning of the, the digital boom. And I ended up getting an internship with Fox News in New York. And at the end of that, they offered to sponsor me. And so I was sort of in this dilemma of, do I want to go down a, a news path, which is something I hadn't really considered before? Um, or do I want to continue to pursue my my dancing career? But I think that opportunity to be sponsored and to to go to Los Angeles, and that was just really too much to, to sort of say no to at that point. So I started my career really in LA. It was very general assignment. So one minute you might be at the Oscars, next minute I'd be at the Compton Courthouse covering a Suge Knight trial. Um, in another instant, I'd be on some political investigation somewhere. So it was this very big baptism by fire. Um, and But really at that point, you know, you're looking at when the surges started in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I also felt there was this whole part of the world that I really wanted to understand that was very much outside uh, my Los Angeles sphere. And so I'd had a little bit of a background speaking very rudimentary Arabic. So I sort of used that as leverage to to get to the Middle East. Um, and then eventually that also led me to Afghanistan. And I think my first experiences in, in covering conflicts and, and just visiting places in the world that just seemed so far away from me, it was 
it was a sort of a love at first sight. And when I first started to do it, I I just couldn't imagine doing anything else. And everything that I came back when I would come back to the States and, and try to be again, going to the Grammys or on a red carpet somewhere, it just, it felt just so removed from the work that I wanted to be doing. And so I, I really sort of took that leap and, and took charge of what I wanted to do and and basically manipulated my bosses into <laughs> to sending me into to wild places that no one really wanted to go to so that's that's how I got my foot in it was um nobody came to me and said here we want you to go here it was very much me push 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 uh each time it was it was a slog but I was very determined that there was just so many fascinating stories that needed to be told where did that writing spark come from in you I love to write always. I think as a kid, I remember my mom was studying uh, early childhood at, at university when I was young. So I was sort of her test case. Um, so I would often write books for her. And so I always had a, a fairly wild imagination and writing was something I always loved, but I never really understood that it could be a career. I just thought it was something you did for fun. You read, you write. That was that was all a fun way to, to really use our imagination. And um, it really wasn't it. Until I got my foot into journalism that I understood that this was something that um, could be a career. And I think for me, I had such a deep love for writing and I, I loved it a lot more than I ever loved doing anything on camera because... To me, even though, you know, everybody wanted to, to sort of be in front of the camera and that seemed like the most lucrative path and, you know, it certainly is a more <laughs> lucrative path than being a writer, but there was something about being able to, you know, for example, to just be able to sit with a subject somewhere and you're you're sitting with them and you're sitting with them for hours and you're with their family and you're spending days, if not weeks with them to write a piece and that's something that can't really quite be translated, um, you know, on camera or in a quick, you know, 10, five minute segment even. And so for me, it was really about getting the detail and the depth. And that was why I really wanted to go into that long form writing, because I really felt that was the way that you could get to know a place and a subject and a culture in a, in a much more intimate, intimate way. What were the the kind of books that you were reading then? Kind of um, you know, growing up was was it? Were you into war journalism then? You know, I think, and, and one book that really sticks out for me is to carve her name with pride, and it was uh, it was a book by RJ Mini. I think I read it when I was about thirteen or fourteen. It was this really old book that I found in the back of my school library, and it was basically about a uh, a British French woman who um, served as a an underground spy during the Second World War, and you know it was. It was incredible because it was just so eye-opening, her tenacity. And she was eventually captured um, by the Germans really just before the war ended. And and her her tenacity and not giving up any information and to really sticking to her guns and to just being this real trailblazer, that was something that, that had a deep impact on me because I I thought of all these, you know, incredible people whose names um, we do know, you know, her now, but the, all these people that, that served in a way that will never know their names and will never know their stories. And that captivated me, not necessarily because I wanted to go down that route myself, but because I felt these stories had such an impact on me, how many more of them were out there. And, and they were certainly stories I was really intrigued by and, and wanted to to tell in, in many ways. And, and my uh, grandfather, who I never met, 
was a World War II veteran and he served um, in Papua New Guinea and and everything was very mysterious to me. And my gra- my Nana would just tell me stories sort of about how when she met him after the war and um, his struggles with alcoholism, he ended up dying of alcohol poisoning, I think, when he was very young, about 40. And so it really also was just an intriguing thing for me to to understand the impact of war as well um, because it's something, especially at that point, that really still wasn't talked about a great deal. So there were just little pieces of the pie, I think, throughout my childhood and growing up that, that sort of formed that interest and that curiosity. So what I was just thinking as well, like you were talking about library books there, and I was just thinking about uh, – that exam is I, I forget really um about kind of uh you know reading in, in childhood and finding books in the library and what kind of joy there was when you came across something you know that you found you'd, you'd find in um I don't know I just don't feel like it's an experience that people have as much finding books online as like when you're going through yeah. I guess you could have it in charity shops and stuff you know you're digging through bins or whatever of books and then you just come across some real gem that you'd never have, you'd like you say, you never would have known that person's story. And then you just get this crazy like echo from history. And it feels so like, uh, I think a lot of these smaller books, which, you know, they're not as well known. You feel like you have this really intimate connection with the writer because you know that there's not many, there's probably only a few thousand people left in the world now that might know this person's story, maybe less than that. And I think that's, yeah, I've always been into that kind of connection. Were you, uh, were you somebody that used to steal books from the school library? Oh, I'm sure there's probably like an arrest warrant out for me somewhere along the line of things not returned. But wasn't it? It was so cool. I can just I can remember the smell and like you pick up those old books and using the card. And yeah, it was just it was something special. I think that it's kind of lost now um, that we just there. We just don't have it anymore. Do you ever go to the library, like a physical no, library? No, I don't. I don't. It was funny. I, I went to a, a national library conference with a publisher friend of mine a couple of months ago, and all these people from all over, really the world, were there. And I remember her and I having this discussion about, wow, there, there are still these libraries that exist because, you know, do you know anyone that goes to a library still? And we're sort of like, no, we don't. Um, it's even hard to kind of find a bookstore anymore. So... It's certainly a dying breed, but yeah, it was in some ways encouraging to see, still see so many people that were there, you know, on behalf of different libraries around the world. I mean, you, you might have seen these uh, yourself. I'm sure you'd have over there. One of the things I thought was really cool in certain parts of LA is you get these, um, um, like these little libraries on the street where people have got, oh, it's yeah. almost like a big birdhouse or whatever, you know, it's got the, like the door on the front and they just ask you to kind of like, you take one book out and drop one book in or whatever. And you can just walk down the street and take it, which I always feel really weird doing in America. Cause I know they can shoot you for a lot of stuff with, <laughs> with, with taking property. So I'm always a bit, I'm always a bit wondering if it's a trap or whatever, but I, I think it's really cool when you see, um, you see things like that around because there's just something special about having a physical book, I think. Right. Yeah, there is. But I have to say, I have in recent times really embraced the Kindle. Um, I never thought that I would. Being on the road so much, I don't want to accumulate things. So I sort of went through this whole minimalism thing. So I forced myself to download books on Kindle, which is great if you're on a plane or on a long road trip. And what I love about it is you can go through and highlight passages that you love and just immediately pull them up. And for me, when I'm reading, I think these days it's often about more 
more about I'm looking for really quality writing that can inspire me even more so than the actual content of the book itself. So when I find those passages that you're just like, oh my gosh, this is just so incredibly written and being able to highlight them. And whenever I'm in my writer's rut, I can just kind of flick it open and immediately go back to it and get that sort of sense of inspiration. So I'm I'm adapting slowly. I do I do the same kind of thing. Like I just had um, I don't know if you ever heard of Bernard Cornwell. He wrote like the Sharp books, and um, he he's just massively successful historical fiction author. And I might just for like one night just read two chapters of one of his books, and then I put it back on the shelf because I'm not interested in going through the whole story. But just like that kind of masterful. You know, like it's just just art, just brilliant mm. art for two chapters, and then I'm like you said, I'm like, right, I'm okay, I'm inspired now. Book down, yeah, and I'm not gonna go. Yeah, I'm not gonna see the rest of the story. Um, uh, you've got um, you've got a book coming out, and we're gonna talk a bit about more, uh, a bit more about that later. Um, and I, I, w- I want to talk a little bit more about writing later on, but let's go back to Afghanistan. First time you went out there, one, how the hell did you arrange? just going out to Afghanistan. So like how how do, how does one a journalist kind of go about that? Is this something that you were was was done through Fox or is this something you you had to kind of figure everything out off your own back? Yeah, even you know with my my work with Fox it was I still pretty much I did everything. I did always did my own logistics, worked out my own storylines, did uh coordinated my own fixes, like I I pretty much did it all. So the first trip I I did was I just came back I'd spent most of my sort of career in Iraq in the Middle East and so I went I believe it was the beginning of 2017 and I spent a, a few months out there then and uh, yeah I mean I has sort of had a friend who'd done some work in Kabul and was able to introduce me to a really an incredible fixer uh, his name was Muslim and he had been a uh, you know, one of the Panjiri fighters and a guard for Masood back during the Soviet war and so he had this very rich sort of experience of of Afghanistan and so I kind of went um, and met with him you know I think I met him in Dubai and and we had a big chat and then basically got on a plane and and went to Kabul and that was um, that was sort of the beginning of the spring offensive so it was a it was a fairly heavy time in terms of fighting and it was just as the US had dropped that giant Moab bomb so that was sort of my uh, uh, my quest was to figure out how I was going to get myself to this Taliban ISIS territory of Jalalabad and and do a story on what the aftermath of that was and and get in there and then sort of in the process um, you just learn so much along the way you're, whether it's you're talking to women uh, you're talking to soldiers um, I remember going to interview uh, some of the c- t- captured Taliban fighters and their stories were just incredible um, so really it, it, again it was just trying to find the right people and sort of an approach that I take I think is you use that one person's story to sort of paint that larger picture so rather than throwing out a whole bunch of numbers and statistics which are meaningful but they tend to uh, sanitize a conflict or, or remove us from the battlefield in many ways but when you're you're really up close with people uh, from all sides of the spectrum and you're able to tell that individual story I think that gives people a much broader sense of exactly what is going on. So that was really sort of my intention there. And I remember, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a bizarre time because we didn't really know at that point what was happening. There was still, you know, early peace talks, but yet there seemed to just be daily 
bombings that were happening um, across the city, it was really hard to travel to places that weren't in the city. Um, so, we, you know, we were restricted in that way. And so that was certainly a contrast to, to everything that happened later. But I, I fell very deeply in love with Afghanistan because I, I really saw it as a somewhat of a forgotten war. I saw how U.S. And, and NATO troops, you know, had worked to really try to bring some incredible programs um, into Afghanistan. But yet you were looking at a security situation, which was just so incredibly fragile at the time. It was hard to imagine that that was ever going to end. And so I think um, it's easy to sort of walk away from Afghanistan. And particularly then there just seemed to be a little interest in it. But I was determined to somehow continue to keep going back and, and telling the stories. So you mentioned you let, you came from Iraq and you were there, you saw a lot of uh, what was going on with ISIS and, and that kind of whole situation there. What was like, so what, what were some of the kind of striking differences that you found in the one conflict to the other? I think you're looking, uh, I mean, with Iraq and ISIS, it was so much of it was urban fighting. You know, you ISIS had just come in and taken over. I believe it was at least a third of Iraq at that point. Um, and, and also huge parts of Syria. So you're looking at just these incredible, you know, Mosul being under control, Raqqa being under ISIS control. And so you're just looking at this really incredible sort of door to door fighting and the incredible, um, sort of logistics that had to go into it. And then when it was all said and done, completely flattened cities. And to me, you know, you're looking at this is what a victory looks like, a, a city that's entirely flattened. Um, you know, for me, that was really hard for me to get my head around. Uh, contrast that with Afghanistan, it, it, it's a lot more fighting in, in very um, rural places. So you didn't have sort of mass destruction of, of cities, but yet um, it seemed to be certainly less, uh, there was less sort of understanding of where the enemy was, was lurking. And I think in Iraq, it was fairly sort of straightforward. Um, you know, the mission was to defeat ISIS, whereas you went to Afghanistan and the U.S. mission there at that particular point in time was to defeat ISIS-K, which is the Afghanistan branch of ISIS. But yet Taliban was presenting such a greater threat. And yet that wasn't the mission to go after the Taliban. And so that was very frustrating for Afghans because they're sort of looking at ISIS going, you know, it's a sideshow. It's a joke. There is if, you know, a couple of hundred, maybe a thousand fighters. Um, but Taliban are, are doing suicide bombings and, um, you know, also wrecking all sorts of havoc pretty much all over the country every single day. And yet our mandate is not to go after them. So, um, you know, I think that was sort of a very confusing mission all around at that point. And it really wasn't until later, I think Trump authorized uh, the US and its partners to be able to go after Taliban, but that was very much late in the fight. So just sort of make sure I got this right then. So after the kind of um, NATO troops stopped taking offensive action, I think it was 2015, there was a almost like a pause on any kind of attacks on Taliban, and instead it was all about focusing on the ISIS K. Yes, so that was that was the mandate because really ISIS K, much like Al Qaeda before it, was considered to be a threat to the the US and and to its interests, whereas the Taliban was really considered to be more of a, a domestic problem as opposed to a group that had any broader ideological desires. And so, therefore, it was never designated as an official terrorist group. And the Haqqani network, which operated sort of within the Taliban, um, was a designated terrorist group because at that point they were doing a lot of the kidnappings and extortion. But 
the Taliban as an umbrella itself was never a designated terrorist group. I know a lot of veterans right now will be scratching their heads because we told we were told we weren't at war and they're not terrorists. So it's kind of like if they're not terrorists and they weren't an army, who are we fighting? <laughs> like it's Yeah. And that was part of the problem, you know, and then you had new generals coming in every three to four years and it was basically like starting over. And that is the big difference. The Taliban doesn't have new leaders coming in every few years and mandates changing and and turnover and things like that. These are the the same people that we see in power now were the same people in power 25 years ago. So they don't have that sort of same, they're in it for the long game. Whereas I think, you know, with the way that our strategy works, which is sort of to continually change or evolve, um, that that doesn't quite work in the Afghan model, in my opinion. I mean, we had new brigadier every six months. So every six months in the British area in Helmand, it would be a new brigadier with a new plan. I mean, six months, you can't get anything done. It's just, you know, no, no continuity. Do you agree from, from the Taliban that you've met, would you say that their interests are within Afghanistan or did you find them, you know, they were saying, yeah, we're going to finish our job here and then we're going to come over to the States or were they like, no, we just want to control Afghanistan? Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't meet a sort of a, a single Talib that, that seemed to have any interest. And it was only a question I tried to ask as often as I could. And no, none of them expressed any interest in anything outside of Afghanistan. So I think they were very um, clear on their vision that they wanted independent, they wanted Afghanistan to, to be independent of any foreign meddling or influence um, and that their goal was to, you know, create the Islamic emirate that they wanted within that country. But I certainly didn't get any sense that there were any sort of great desires to extend beyond that border. I do think that the Taliban mandate is very much focused within the country itself. But that does beg the bigger question of, are they allowing, um, you know, these groups like Al-Qaeda that have broader interests, uh, safe haven in the country, which is the reason that we went in there in the first place. So that is sort of the elephant in the room. And that's also a really tough cookie because it's, if they kind of don't allow them, would that undermine their support? Like, would that pull a lot of people away from the Taliban and, and pull them into more hardline groups? Um, so is it almost that they have to allow these kind of people in? Because if they don't, um, they'll still be there anyway, and the Taliban will lose um, will will lose some of their quote unquote membership to um, yeah. to them. Is that something that's like is that is that plausible? Yeah, I think it's and it was a, certainly a big cause for concern. You know, one of the things that especially for uh, they couldn't seem like they are uh, conceding to whatever demands the hum the human rights community uh, abroad has or that the U.S. has, um, because to them that would potentially uh, take a huge chunk of their base who will look at them and go, well, you're just doing what the U.S. told you to do. This is exactly what you told us that you weren't going to do. So we're going to go and join ISIS-K now because you aren't living up to your mandate. So that is a very legitimate concern that the Talibs have. I also look, you know, and history has a funny way of repeating itself, but I look back at the first rule that the Talibs had back in the 90s, and it really, there was no more isolated governments than the Taliban at that point in time. They were not recognized by anyone, uh, certainly didn't have a seat at the UN, no real country, you know, wanted to do any sort of business with them. And so it was obviously a difficult time for them financially. You have this one guy that comes in and 
gives you not much money, you know, a million dollars. In the scheme of things, that's not much. But when nobody's giving you anything, a million dollars is a lot. And that man happened to be Osama bin Laden. So naturally, with their Pashtun Wally code, and because he's the only person that's, you know, giving them any support in the community, um, he's going to, you know, have some sway in, in getting some some safe haven. And so when 9-11 happened, um, you know, and Bush said, you know, sent the message to Mullah Omar, basically, you know, give him up or we're coming in, uh, that natural instinct was, well, you know, he's the only one who supported us during this time. So why, you know, you didn't. So why are we going to concede to what you tell us to do? And so, you know, that's that led to the all-out invasion. Was it even conceivable that they could hand him over anyway? You know, that I think is debatable and it's hard because I, I, I hear a lot about, you know, Mullah Omar and Osama supposedly having a close relationship, but a lot of also what I've come to understand and, and to read and in talking with people that, that were close to Mullah Omar, I don't necessarily think that was the case. I think Mullah Omar tended to view Osama as more of a nuisance more than anything in the sense of, of having this, uh, this sort of powerful uh, al-Qaeda leader on his ground in some ways that detracted from his own power and also caused, um, you know, issues with Pakistan, with the international community to some degree. So I, I do think it's conceivable that they had awareness of probably where he was at that point, which was probably Tora Bora. Um, but whether or not, you know, they could had the, the closeness with him in order just to kind of hand him over, it's really hard to say. But, um, but I think... I think the the degree to which at that point that they had a close relationship has tended to to be overplayed uh, in the passage of time. This is where things derail for me, right? So it's right, hand over Osama, we're going to come and get him. Don't hand him over, come and get him. Osama goes into Pakistan. People know he's gone in Pakistan. We stay for 20 years. So with the kind of the Taliban that you've met and stuff, do they almost have like a, is there almost a bit of a, because one of the things you'll, you might, you've probably experienced when you talk to a lot of soldiers is there's not really a lot of times, a lot of animosity about each other, about certain fights, you know, you know what, it's like fair enough fight, you know, it's almost kind of like, um, I knew what I was getting into, he knew what he was getting into, no problem. Is, is there almost a bit of uh, an almost acceptance that they know why we came over in the first place to get? Osama, and then they're like, well, why are these people staying here now? Osama's gone. And then Osama's been dead for 10 years. Why are they still here? Is, is, that, is that kind of a, a kind of train of thought that you get with the Taliban that you met? Yeah, you do. And I remember this one Talib who is actually the spokesperson now for the uh, virtue vice ministry that, that you know, it, it puts out all these um, draconian rules. But he, um, he, at that point, he was a, a sort of a, I think the correct term is culture minister for Logar province. And he was, you know, similar age to me, kind of teenager when 9-11 happened and, and pretty much got into the fight straight away. And he sort of phrased it to me. I remember he looked at me and he said, well, how would you like it if I went to Australia and then suddenly started recruiting other Australians to join me in killing other Australians? Wouldn't you fight back? And of course, you know, your instinct is certainly to say, well, of course I'd fight you back. Um, and so that's sort of the way that he he sees it is, well, that's what we were doing. We were fighting basically a foreign force that came to our country, started recruiting other countrymen uh, to, to you know, fight against us. And so we were doing what anybody would do, and that is continue to, to fight back until that influence was gone. Um, so, you know, there is that, you know, perspective, which is a, is a hard pill to swallow, I think, at times. Is there a generational difference 
in the Afghanistan in terms of attitudes towards the worst? You know, I, I would be inclined in my experience to kind of say not necessarily. I think um, even when you're talking to a lot of the young Talibs, it's not that they've necessarily had that much more of a exposed existence. You know, a lot of the times they're poor villages. Um, they went to these madrasas, you know, in the tribal areas of Pakistan. Um, they weren't necessarily, you know, all that privy to smartphones and internet and, and all these things that we are. And so I think that, you know, the majority of they didn't get a you know huge amount of schooling, and so their their schooling is coming from these madrasas, um, you know, and these very sort of extremist um, points of view. And so, I think in some ways you could even look at the um, the younger generation as is potentially more extreme than even the older generation who have gone through multitudes of war and and have probably got a little bit more wisdom under their belt about the way the world works. I think a lot of the younger talibs um, are still very um, hardline really in their mindset so i think it's i don't think it's uh, all that their minds aren't necessarily broadened just because they're younger and i think that is just a result of the way that most of them grew up so i suppose in a way there's a danger that we've kind of by trying to take some terrorists off the board that we've kind of hardened the mm. like what maybe i mean who knows if like i mean i'm just you know let's just say 9-11 ha- never happened so there was no mm. need to go there. So we're not even talking about ignoring 9-11. We're saying, but they just never happened. What Afghanistan might look of like if it had been, you know, 20 years, maybe would it still be the Taliban of 2001? Or maybe there would, would things have gradually kind of, you know, kind of changed there. And, but obviously, like, you can't have 20 years of war without hardening people, right? It's just not going to yeah. happen. Uh, I mean, we're talking about one of the hardest cultures um, on the planet in history um, anyway. Is history something that you find Afghans are very aware of? I think, you know, to obviously a large degree, you know, Af- Afghanistan has been in so many perpetual wars for so long. And so I think it's, and sadly, I think, you know, it's, it's become something that they pretty much accepted as, as part of their life. Um, so again, it depends on, uh, you can meet Afghans, there's sort of no one monolith of an Afghan. So you can meet Afghans that have had um, the fortune of, of being able to go to schools and to universities and to receive a much broader education. But I think what a lot of journalism fails to recognize is, uh, you know, you go out to the villages, um, which not enough journalists, in my opinion, do. I think so much is sort of focused in Kabul, um, which is very different than even, you know, just traveling 40 minutes outside of the city where their lives are potentially better as a result of the Taliban coming back to power. And I say that because they're no longer having to walk outside their home with the threat of um, a bombing or a firefight. Um, it's not necessarily, you know, their, their village is not at war anymore that it has been for so many decades. In terms of, you know, girls' education and things like that, they, they weren't things that were necessarily important to them to begin with. The women always covered themselves in a burqa anyway and, and were very conservative in the way that they approached their lives. So their lives are, are very different to a lot of the women in the city. Um, and so I think we, we sort of tend to, to kind of forget that so much of Afghanistan is still an extremely conservative um, place and, and that their lives haven't necessarily changed all that much um, the way that, you know, we tend to trumpet somewhere like Kabul and that you know we could look at you know the war as well and and many places that you go to you know for example I remember traveling 
to go to the original mosque um, in Kandahar that Mullah Omar started the Taliban out, out of. It's a very simple mosque. Um, and, you know, I talked to the people there and, and they didn't receive any benefit out of the U.S. and NATO occupation there. And that was because that was sort of an area that was often very dangerous for, for troops and things to go to. So, um, you know, they couldn't really speak of the benefits that a lot of the people in Kabul perhaps received because it was a lot easier to um, establish things there. So, you know, every Afghan is going to really come at it from a completely different personal experience. Yeah, and the same is true of uh, a lot of Brits that went to Helmand. I know a lot of people think, what was the fucking point? Because people go there 2006, they go 2009, there's really no difference. And I, I know friends who have been and they said they'd gone to then, gone to Kabul to do... Um, security work like on the civilian sector and then they were like oh that that was when i realized that there was actually something changing because you go to Helmand, you go year after year after year and like you said there's nothing really changing there and most of the people are just like i just want my house to not be on a front line anymore mm. you know which is obviously what most people think i just think as well as you're talking there i was thinking i i think we really so i, I definitely want to talk about the situation of, of people's kind of human rights and things there. and i just think when you mentioned just how long these people have been at war and stuff very easy for us in the West to go like, you know, I'm, you know, rights is very important to me or I don't want people to get whipped for doing this or, or, or that. But then you have to put it across against that kind of backdrop of the violence because the Taliban came to power because they ordered some kind of order and stability after brutal civil war, after decade of war with the Soviets, you know, millions of Afghans dead and displaced. And I think people are willing to accept some kind of harsh rule to have stability. Um, I mean, it's almost like what happened in, in the West the last couple of years. People are like, all right, well, you can take away some of our freedoms, you know, in the, in the name of safety, right? And I, and, I, and I think maybe we underestimate that just how many people are just like, look, okay, it's, it's not what we want, but fuck, it's, at, least it's, at, least, at least grandpas are not going to get blown apart by a bomb and, you know, that kind of side of things. Is there a massive war weariness in the place, or as you say, is it just something that is it just so not normal? In I mean, what are we talking here now? Like what? Thir um, it's got to be forty years of continuous war, something like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, seventy nine is when the war with the Soviets broke out, but you know, even times before that, there was there was skirmishes and challenges. But yeah, seventy nine was really really the the beginning of the modern wars. So do you, do you find that the people that are, uh, is there almost like a peace by any cost kind of um, mentality with, 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 with it? Again, we're kind of generalizing here, but. I think it's hard to say. I'm sure there's certainly huge contingencies of people that feel that way, but they tend to be the less outspoken in the, in the population. Um, and we tend to really mostly only hear the voices of the, the desperate and, and people that are wanting to leave. And, and that really comes down to, the economic situation that Afghanistan is in, and that is a that is a byproduct of the U.S. sort of building a country, um, you know, based upon a war economy where eighty-seven percent of people were either working for the U.S.-backed government, or they were uh, with an NGO, or they were with a contractor, uh, or some degree. And so, literally, you pulled the plug on that overnight when the Taliban came to power. And so, I mean, there was no economy. It was a, it was a a fake economy. And so naturally that is going to crumble. And then there's all sorts of concerns and sanctions and security worries about NGOs and other groups sort of staying there and operating. So that really, um, 
you know, it just was existed in a bubble for so long. And so when that bursts, naturally, it's going to be, you know, have huge consequences. All those jobs are going to go away. All that financial assistance is going to go away. All that humanitarian aid is going to go away in any country um, would certainly be struggling under that weight. And it just, it happened all at once. So it was just a sort of an incredible slide. Given that, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not good with numbers, but I can tell that 87% of people employed in that manner, when that ends, is going to be fucking disaster. Have you met anyone in, you know, the kind of military hierarchy or defense experts? Have you met anyone that actually thought, yeah, the Afghan security forces will beat down the Taliban and this government in Kabul is going to last for decades? Uh, I think, you know, the Pentagon did a lot of talking on that, which... <laughs> Uh, but I think, you know, when you talk to soldiers, um, you know, they're the first people that can tell you, you know, they they weren't up to par. And I think also part of the problem is what we, and I, you know, I say we as, as, as NATO people working in the country, what we tried to do was build, uh, a military based on Western militaries, based on, you know, how the U S approaches a conflict. And that was not an Afghan military. Um, and so I think there was immediately, you know, that disconnect there because it, it just wasn't necessarily inherent to w- the way they fight or the way that the fighting needed to have been done against the Taliban. Um, and I think, you know, for so long, and this goes back to my my theory about the the roots of corruption, to me, corruption was the number one thing that led to the Taliban coming back to power. It was the number one thing why Afghanistan really in the end of the day failed. And the U.S. and other countries were very well aware of the corruption. You can go back to cigar reports back to 2011, where they're saying, you know, all this stuff is happening. There is money that's not supposed to be going where it's it's going. And and at the end of the day, that was reflected in the military. So the U.S. might look um, at a piece of paper that says we have 300,000 soldiers and they're stationed here, here and here with this capacity. But what was failed, I guess, to to really be recognized was that a huge portion of that 300,000 were ghost soldiers, which meant that they didn't exist. They'd either died on the battlefield and their commanders were continuing to use their cards to go and withdraw their pay every month. Um, or they, you know, in order to get the money that half the equipment in that battalion had been sold or siphoned off or, you know, wasn't um, working anymore and, and nobody wanted to kind of report it. Um, so there was corruption on so many levels. And I really think that at the end of the day, that's what led to the downfall because what the figures we were seeing on paper didn't match the reality. And so the, the capability that the US and other people thought that the Afghan forces had just didn't exist. Um, and so that really made it easy for the Taliban to be able to, again, play into that corruption in terms of cutting deals with warlords, cutting deals with commanders, and um, and really bringing a, you know, a huge force because the numbers just weren't there. When, it, when push came to shove. Was that naivety from the West or worse? Yes, definitely naivety had to have played a part in it. But I think there was just always this unwillingness to ever deal with corruption. And you can go back to, I remember reading leaked um, State Department cables uh, from 10, uh, 12 years ago, and they were talking about corruption then. And yet it was sort of looked at as this systematic um, problem that, that the US can't really solve or it was a secondary problem to everything else, um, rather than looking at it as a as a real root cause of everything that was going on in Afghanistan and the reason why things were failing. And when I really started to explore this, it just it blew my mind just how deep that corruption really went. And that 
you know, you would have judges in in places that would um you know host these sort of fake trials or, or somebody would be falsely accused of a crime just so that a, a fake trial could be held that could then enable a judge or other you know prosecutors to extort uh, money out of people and it just on every level there seemed to be a way that corruption had sort of been been able to be sort of figured out by everyone on every possible level um and so you know again the Taliban also use that as a as a key recruitment tool so even if you don't perhaps agree ideologically with the Taliban if you are you know just a poor Afghan farmer and you're trying to get to work every day and you're having to pay off a policeman every single day because you know he's only going to let you through that checkpoint if you do eventually you're going to get pissed off enough that you're going to want to fight against your own government and whether you agree with the Taliban or not they're the ones that were doing the heavy lifting when it came to that and so I I also think that was just a real failure to kind of recognize the role that corruption was playing and it was something that made me incredibly angry when I was there um, because you would just see, you know, these people would, would come at me desperate for uh, whatever hand that they could get in in terms of getting out of the country. And I would look down and look at their Rolex and say, well, you know, if that if that money that you received to buy that Rolex had actually gone to where it was supposed to go to, maybe you wouldn't be in the situation right now. And that was a, a big problem that still now um, I think a lot of people don't want to recognize is is the level. Um, and you can blame the US, you can blame other people for, you know, flooding the country with this sort of money that they'd never seen before that enabled um, these corruption. And once one person started, everybody kind of had to be on it, in on it. But at the same time, to me, that is really what led to the downfall. And I, I see that in Afghanistan. I saw it in Iraq. I see it in so many places. And it's frustrating because yet, it just seems so little. There's no ever accountability. When was the last time you time you heard about? Um, and, you know, in the U.S., you know, had soldiers and other people that were certainly part of different corruption schemes too. But really, when was the last time you ever heard about an Afghan government official being held accountable for stealing X amount of dollars? It never. It just didn't happen. And so, when you can get away with it, it's only going to increase. And it just it got to the point where I think it was just it was mind blowing to me. Well, it's like right now we're holding back money, saying, well, we can't give this money to the Taliban, even though there's this this famine going on in Afghanistan. I'm thinking, well, why, why wasn't this kind of like if we're saying that we can't give it to them because some of it's going to get siphoned off. As you're saying, it's been siphoned off for for two decades. You know, that doesn't seem like a good excuse to let fucking kids starve to me. No, um, no. And, and I just want to, before we kind of talk about that, I just want to, you know, because... I, I really think that you need to... I mean, it used to be that old maxim of know thy enemy, which seems to have gone out the window now and people don't seem to want to understand the Taliban or what their motivations are. You know, just kind of have this only good Taliban's a dead Taliban, you know, thing, which is, you know, it's just such a ridiculously simplistic view of looking at things because it's like, look, at the end of the day, you know, the, the they're there, they're controlling large parts of the country, they now control all the country. And if we want to make life better for the Afghan people, which I think most of us do, then you have to know who the people on the other side are. Um, but so people don't think that we are kind of um, cheerleading the Taliban, let's just say, what are the, some of the things that have really kind of deteriorated in Afghanistan since they've come back in, in, over the last year? Well, certainly press freedom. That is a big one. And, and again, that was something that was so bizarre in the beginning because after the fall... I remember it just suddenly, you know, the Taliban didn't really understand how to govern. I think they'd come to power much quicker than they'd expected. They were also very much on a, a 
PR tirade of, of making them seem, wanting the world to sort of think that they'd changed and were very different to their previous rule. Um, so suddenly everything was incredibly open. Um, you know, you sort of just had to go and get a letter from Mujahid, the spokesman, um, giving you sort of permission to operate there. And you basically wave this letter through any checkpoint or any place and, and they don't, uh, they don't bother you. So for the first few weeks, it was really incredible. You'd go up to a ministry and, and, you know, me as a woman, I wouldn't even be security checked. And I'm like walking through the MOD. Um, I remember at one point going up to a suicide bombing school that was, you know, it was hidden in a kindergarten and I sort of got wind um, that it existed. And so we thought we, you know, let's try and see what's going on here. So I was with my fixer and, and my photographer, Jake, and we just basically went up and knocked on the door and told them we were journalists and wanted to come and talk to them. And um, they said, you know, okay, you're Australian, you're all right then, you know, clearly as long as I, I wasn't American. And they let us in. And, and so here we are touring the suicide school. It was just, you know, it was very bizarrely opened. But that really didn't take too long for that to change. And so I think, you know, very quickly things started to become a lot harder to get interviews. It was a lot harder to get access. Um, the Taliban were very weary of, of any journalists being there. And, and basically it was easier just to ignore you um, rather than, you know, try to present their, their point of view, which I think they tried to do at the beginning. So, and I think that has only really deteriorated over time is that, that sense of press freedom um, that I just, I, I think that is probably one of the most flagrant things that have have deteriorated you know and then on top of that uh, obviously we you know we talk about women we talk about access to girls education which is a huge problem and um, you know it's been more than a year now since girls have been able to go to school uh, in most provinces and it's just sort of one excuse after another that the Taliban seems to not be able to agree upon in things and yet they'll sort of wax lyrical and tell you oh but we believe in full rights to girls under Islam so obviously the plight of women and girls' education in Afghanistan is a, a really big problem um, when most of the country is not able to go to school and it's been more than a year. Um, but this is a problem that is very unique to Afghanistan. So, you know, there are many Muslim-majority countries in the world, but yet Afghanistan is the only one that seems to not be allowing girls to, to go to school. And I think that has more to do with sort of the very conservative Pashtun culture as opposed to, um, you know, anything religious. But we keep hearing the same excuses from them for the past year, which is, oh, you know, we believe in girls' education and full rights, and yet, um, you know, we've got to fix the uniform issue. Or we have to make sure there's separate transportation for the girls, and they have to be in a separate school. And, and most of these mechanisms are already in place. Um, so it just seems to be one excuse after the other. And that is a, that is a really big problem. And I also think it points to the very fragmented nature of the Taliban because uh, the Taliban isn't one cohesive unit. Um, there are many different interests within the Taliban. And so I think a lot of that sort of very archaic rule comes from the Kandahari side of the Taliban, um, which are very much about their, their pastoral culture and these sort of very uh, draconian laws. But then I, I look at, you know, other aspects of the Taliban, for example, the Haqqani network. Um, and a lot of them, you know, their daughters, their sisters, their wives are often educated in Arab schools and universities. And, and so they tend to have a little bit of a different outlook, I think, on education. And so it sort of just points to this jostle within the Taliban that they're not able to, to solve. And I also 
have spoken to Taliban um, members and, and leaders and spokespeople who will tell me, you know, you should continue to push them on this. This is a problem. Um, so there are people within the Taliban that certainly are, are advocates of not agreeing with that policy. So, um, but it is a big problem. And I think the Taliban really needs to realize that they aren't going to get anywhere in terms of having um, large-scale diplomatic relations, uh, particularly with the West, if they don't sort of allow this very basic right. Um, you know, it's interesting to me because it's obviously extremely important, but so many horrible things can happen to people in terms of, um, you know, how they're treated or, or stoning, um, you know, if accused of adultery. And, and that happens in many countries. And Yet it's the girls' education, which don't get me wrong, again, very important, but that seems to be sort of the stickler for the lens that the international community views Afghanistan out of. Yeah, it's like you said, it's um, fucking, you know, you've only got to look at what goes on in places like Saudi Arabia to think, like, you know, could we not, could we not, we actually have a lot of influence over these people, could we not be? And then I suppose, again, this would be a whole other conversation, but it's like who actually has the influence over who when you can't? clamp down on things like that um yeah what is the biggest um the biggest obstacle that afghanistan has now i really think it's it's um right now it's certainly you know it's in the economic humanitarian front um when you can't feed your family when you can't find a job um when you can't sort of have basic medical needs met you know that is that is a big obstacle that it, you know that needs to be overcome and, and it's not just about throwing money at the problem um, but it's really about trying to to build up some kind of real infrastructure in Afghanistan. Um, $2.2 trillion couldn't do it. So, you know, what what is going to be able to do it? And that is going to be the problem that Afghanistan and only Afghanistan can really address. I think the more that, you know, outside influence tries to sort of come in and save the day or or to kind of impose their way of doing things, it's that's just not going to work for Afghanistan. And so really now it is up to Af the Afghan people, um, up to the Taliban, up to, you know, whoever's really controlling different villages and places to to make an effort and, and show a willingness to put that infrastructure in place. And, and Afghanistan has to be in charge of Afghanistan. I just, it doesn't work when the outside is trying to do it for them. We haven't even scratched the surface of your experiences in Afghanistan, uh, all, the, all the people that you've talked to and everything. Um, I've had a nice day reading through stuff on your Substack, um, so I recommend everyone go and take a look at that. But for people who don't know what Substack is and um, and why it's important, can you tell people a little bit more about um, about that? Yeah, so I um, obviously I, I worked for Fox for many years for most of my sort of professional career, and in the beginning of 2020, for a multitude of different reasons, um, it was no longer sort of the work that I wanted to be doing. I think you know, to be quite frank unfortunately had sort of gone down this sort of avenue of clickbait journalism if you you know in my opinion where everything had become about um a sort of a factory and and there was an unwillingness at least in in the department that I was in to put the money and 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 put the time into really doing in-depth reporting to going to these places to um you know even investigating stories on a domestic level they just it was all just about sort of copying and pasting and and you know in in my opinion that model which is sort of um they call it the aggregation model but to me that's kind of it's still reverse plagiarism and that wasn't something that i i wanted to you know engage in at all so i decided that that was not a fit for me and i really wanted that independence to be able to go and live in afghanistan again 
to be able to sort of travel fairly freely and spend as long as I felt necessary in a certain place to cover that story and to really do these stories justice. So that's when I sort of made that leap to go independent, which is, is very scary um, to kind of lose that, that backing and, you know, and the name and the access and all the good things that come with that. Um, but I, you know, in my early sort of phase of, of sort of starting to freelance and reaching out to different places and um, sort of building my own sort of content, Substack was something that I started at the beginning of last year because I felt um, a lot of great journalists, you know, um, Matt Taibbi from Rolling Stone and Glenn Greenwald, who founded The Intercept, and a lot of really great journalists had gone down that model because I think it's a way you can do independent journalism. So it's sort of like a Patreon in the sense that um, you subscribe to the different writers or, or different um, topics that you're interested in. And um, each sort of individual Substack has a different sort of pay model. Uh, my content is free. If you choose to, you know, contribute, that's awesome. Thank you. But I, you know, I still believe in, in getting the story out there without the sort of paywalls that we see everywhere. Um, so, so most of my content is free. And you can just sort of send out, it's up to you. And for me, I usually send out one to two newsletters a week and that really feature an in-depth story from a different part of the world. Um, and I try to, to tell it in that long-form journalism that I always wanted to do. Um, that was sort of losing steam in the mainstream media. And um, I really try to tell it from a personal lens. And so Substack for me was just sort of a, a great fit to be able to sort of tell the stories the way that I wanted to tell them without, um, you know, being told it had to go down a certain agenda or, or even I wanted to be able to give stories a personal touch too and not sort of write in a formulaic news writing style. And so I have full control in being able to do that with, with Substack. And so I think it's a it's a great platform for independent journalism, and I think it's a it's a great way for journalists to be able to to make a little bit of extra money um, to continue to do the work, and and for people to also get content that they they can't find anywhere else, or that's sort of unique to their interests. Yeah, and I would just like to say, if people are complaining about the mainstream media and don't support independent journalists then shut the fuck up <laughs> you can't complain about it if you're not supporting it um and i include myself in that i like i've just um kind of like understanding these things a bit more now um but it's actually great it's a great cause for optimism because there are a lot of journalists yourself included who are getting out there and getting these stories so the stories are out there the journalists are out there um so go and support them um and you have a book coming out yeah, so um, originally that was sort of the reason I even went to Afghanistan, and this was before the fall last year. So my photographer, Jake Simkin, who is also Australian, um, he'd lived in Afghanistan previously and, and like me, just sort of had a deep love for it, um, wanted to go back. It's it's that place, and this is going to be really politically incorrect of me to say, but but I remember Jake used to call it, it's sort of like an abusive partner. It's like you you love it, you hate it but you keep going back. And so that's sort of the, what we used to refer to Afghanistan as. So we decided collectively that, you know, well, let's go back and let's do a coffee table book. And I thought that would be really unique because he's such a, a brilliant photographer. And then at the same time, you know, I would do the writing for it. And it would just be a different medium um, for people to be able to, uh, to understand Afghanistan. Um, and so we really thought we'd be going back to document that last phase of the U US and, and allied troops being there. 
And then it was going to be, well, how is the Afghan government going to stand on its own two feet? So that was our prerogative in going back. And yeah, we didn't expect it to to end so quickly and to uh, to sort of go the direction it did. So the book sort of ended up being um, in a life before the fall, life during the fall. Uh, we were both caught in Mazar Sharif in the north um, as it fell to the Taliban just before it fell in Kabul. And then the months that ensued of, you know, suddenly the whole country was opened up to us. And so all the places we couldn't go to, um, we could now drive to, you know, we could get in the car and do these, you know, crazy road trips from Kabul to Kandahar, or, you know, we, we entered again back right from the Uzbek border and back down to Kabul. And I think we pretty much went to, to every province. And that was super strange because that was just, it was never doable for security reasons before. Um, and so we were able to really, I think, capture a lot of the country that a lot of people just don't understand and don't see and, and don't, you know, we, we think of Afghanistan as war, but really forget that it's just, it's such a beautiful place. As I'm sure, you know, I mean, Bamiyan, you know, that's where the Buddhas were that the Talibs blew up in, uh, in 2001. But that really is, to me, one of the most incredibly visually amazing places on the, on the planet. Um, and so we wanted to be able to, to bring that to people in a, kind of a different way. And so I thought, you know, a coffee table book is, is really the, a great way to do that. It's, it's not a heavy lift. It's something people can sit and read in an afternoon um, and sort of be taken on a, a visual journey in that process. So I'm excited for that to come out. I just want to add about your Substack as well, people, is, is there was obviously a lot of coverage about Afghanistan in, in August, but your stuff is September, October, November, December that year. There's loads of stories from from that period, which is um, a very, um, let's just say, an abandoned period by most most media. So um, that I think I, I found that really interesting to be that you, that you were in there in that kind of immediate after um, that aftermath. Mm. Um, Holly, I could go on and talk about this stuff all day, and I'd love to have you back on the podcast anytime you want to come on, and I'll try and pull you on at some point. Um, because I'd love it, to. I had, look, these are my questions. We've got through about four of them, so <laughs> uh, um, we'll have to have you back. So, but um, we've talked about a lot of stuff today, and some people might um, feel that there's, you know, so there's um, obviously Afghanistan's got big challenges ahead of it. Absolutely, no one's going to deny that. But what is a, a case for optimism, or, or, or something that you? You bring yourself back to 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 you know you 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 got a smile on your face you know you 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 keep going back to these places. What is it that like something that you kind of like look forward to? Something that kind of puts a smile on your face when you think about the future of of these kind of not even necessarily Afghanistan, but just the the the, the future of humanity even in general. I mean, I think Afghans, and you know, can apply this to a lot of the places I've worked in the Middle East as well. Um, you know, Yemen, Iraq, Syria. There is just this incredible hospitality that comes, you know, that, and there's an incredible, uh, very beautiful sort of value on family that I think, um, you know, so much of us in the West have lost, you know, and their, their lives revolve around, you know, ensuring that they have their meals together, um, you know, and in such tenacity in their faith, um, and how important that is to, to a lot of people and, and welcoming guests. And, you know, they may be, you know, being in sort of refugee camps where they absolutely have nothing, but they will give you whatever they have. And I see this sort of time and time again in war zones. And so whilst you do really see the worst of humanity, you also just see the best. And I, you go there and, and you, you remember how important the simple things are in life. And I think, you know, here, 
people get so caught up, especially you know, for me living in LA, New York, DC, it's sort of you're surrounded by people that are constantly sort of climbing over one another to get somewhere or it's sort of looking over your shoulder for the next best thing and everything is smoke and mirrors. You open Instagram, it's all smoke and mirrors of people sort of, you know, telling you what they eat all day and showing, you know, off their abs or whatever it is. And you go to a place like Afghanistan where, um, you know, every single person is a victim of war. Every single person knows somebody who has had their legs blown off or have lost their children or, you know, have endured something that, you know, luckily most of us will, will never have to imagine. And yet, you know, they're still resilient. They're still living through it. They're still welcoming to foreigners. And there's just such a beautiful simplicity and, and minimalism about their life that I, I hope that in some way that, that I can translate back. Holly, that was a great way to end the, uh, end the episode. Thank you so much for coming on today. And um, yeah, we would love to have you back soon. And listeners, we'll catch you next time. And we love you. Goodbye. Thanks for having me. To all of us, a dream that we'd all die for A reason for us all to live and something we could fight for I might just help a man up to his feet or hold a newborn But no matter what I do, my hands remembering my rifle